This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Beta. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, uh, best-selling author, Ressa Oslin. Uh, his book, uh, Zealot, was a New York Times bestseller. And his current book, God, A Human History, is what we want to discuss today. And I just want to say, uh, I read both your books and two of my favorite books in the last few years. And uh, I say that with all sincerity. So thank you so very much for taking the time well, to come on today. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say. I'm, I'm very excited to be talking with you guys. Uh, <coughs> Reza, you've been a best-selling author and a sometimes controversial spokesperson for matters of religion the last several years. Um, we're happy to have you on talk about your new book. Tell us what inspired you to write this at this time. Well, in some ways, this is the book that I've been working towards my entire career. Um, it's the most personal book I've ever written. I mean, it is, in, like many of my books, a book of religious history. In this case, it's about the history of God going all the way back to, um, you know, the earliest conception of the divine, back to the very origins of the religious experience. Um, but in, in other ways, it's also a, a personal journey, if you will. I mean, I had actually intended on writing just a straight history book, but when I began to start delving in um, to prehistorical conceptions of the divine, um, evolutionary theories about how the concept of God arose um, in human evolution, what I discovered was this, this kind of cognitive tick, this impulse that we all have as human beings to um, think of God, however you define God, however many gods you think of, um, in human terms, to sort of uh, implant in God human emotions, human attributes, um, you know, human desires. And once I started delving into that, that became the entire focus of the book. And then Secondarily, I started really thinking about my own spirituality and the fact that I, too, um, do this thing where I humanize God, where I basically construct a God who looks and acts and feels and thinks just like I do. And, and it's something that made me really have to think about uh, a different way of thinking about the divine, both as an academic and as a person of faith. Uh, Risa, you, you had... Uh... Uh, your, your spirituality has evolved. You've gone from uh, Christianity to Islam, Sufism, a big influence on you. Uh, when you wrote mm -hmm. this book, when you wrote God, A Human History, did your spirituality or your relationship to your own spirituality change after a, in the process or after writing the book, or had you gone some, ch some changes and you wanted the book to reflect that? Well, a little bit of both. I mean, I had already gone through some pretty um, profound changes. I grew up Muslim. I converted to evangelical Christianity in high school and then converted back to Islam um, in college and then through Islam um, uh, discovered Sufism, which is the, the, the mystical branch of, of Islam. And Sufism really does um, eschew these kinds of humanizing impulses towards God. Uh, you know, Sufism, like mystic uh, movements in almost every 
religion in the world, um, defines God less as a a divine personality and more as um, the kind of underlying, animating, creative force of the universe. And so that had already been my spiritual trajectory. But, you know, I never really bothered to really analyze in academic terms um, why my understanding about God had always been deeply influenced um, by precisely this humanizing impulse and and what that meant, the the good parts and the bad parts to it. And in the process of writing this book, I I feel like it really pushed me um, to fully uh, embrace a more pantheistic uh, conception of God. One, One that was already brimming within me, but which I think this book really brought out and made explicit. Areza, um, I was going to save this question for later, but you, you've touched on it. Um, it, it seems to me in, in my experience, and in, uh, I'm sure Dennis uh, shares this given all the interviews we've done, um, there are a great many people who have rejected the humanization or the, the anthropomorphic uh, sense of what God is what the divine is. And some of them become anti-religious sort of atheists um, of, in, the, in the sort of Richard Dawkins mode. And others retain a spiritual impulse, but move to a more for, a formless uh, conception of God, one beyond attributes, one that's um, beyond form. And they become the mystics, as you alluded to. Did you find in your research those kinds of reactions to the hardwiring of uh, humanizing God? <laughs> yes, indeed. I will say one thing that was really eye-opening about um, the research that I did, and that is that this humanizing impulse exists in atheists just as much as it does in theists. Yes. That when when an yeah, that when an atheist, someone who says that they do not believe in God, when that person is forced to then describe what they mean by God, they do what most of us do. They immediately begin to describe essentially a divinized version of themselves. Mm -hmm. They start Uh to talk about uh, God in these deeply humanistic terms. And that's, I think, important for a couple of reasons. One, because one of my goals with this book was truly to get us beyond this simple uh, question of, you know, do you believe in God or not? Mm-hmm. It's so fascinating to me that this word God, which of all the words that exist in the English language, must be the most variable <laughs> of words is the one that we all assume, you know, that we have the same definition for, right? right? I mean, rarely do we actually say, well, what do you mean by God? Right. Um, You know, we we just answer it as though we all mean the same thing, and we certainly do not. To your larger point, though, you're absolutely absolutely correct um, that this, this humanizing impulse, as I call it, which is hardwired in our brains, um, can be cast off, but it does require, um, I think, an enormous amount of cognitive effort. There are 
some religions that do it better than others, though, again, we should be careful of these simple dichotomies to Mm -hmm. simply say, well, Eastern religions do it better than Western religions do, because that's not true. Um, In Buddhism, certainly in the the far larger, more mainstream Mahayana branch of Buddhism, um, that humanizing impulse exists in the sense that the Buddha himself is Mm -hmm. considered to be um, the personification of pure dharma, dharma in human form. So even even there, you know, when you talk about a quote-unquote non-theistic religion, that humanizing impulse exists. But I think the important thing to understand is why we do this. And we do it not just because we have a cognitive impulse to doing it, but we do it because it makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, whether you believe in God or not, what you are talking about when you talk about God is something that is fundamentally unknowable, something that is, if anything else, utterly unhuman. Um, So how else would we go about thinking about, talking about, something that is so utterly unhuman, except to humanize it, except Mm -hmm. to put it in human terms. And then there's another aspect to it as well that I think is important to understand, which is that for many people of faith who do believe in God, you know, they want to have a relationship with that God. They want to commune with that God, however they define that God. And, you know, by, by, humanizing the divine, by creating a divine that is familiar, um, that only supports and helps that entire process of, you know, forming that kind of relationship, forming that kind of connection. Um, So we do it because in some ways we can't help it, but we do it also because it feels good. It feels right. It's comfortable It's easy, Um, but it also, I think, has some very negative consequences. Mm -hmm. Uh, Along those lines, if we humanize God, which you say people do, uh, then there's that desire to commune with that God. As a pantheist, and I'm speaking to you now because you make it clear in your book that you Mm -hmm. are a pantheist, how do you define prayer, and is there a use for it, and what would it be like? Is it like the mystics call non-conceptual prayer? Or how, 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 what would you say about prayer? Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent question. And, you know, honestly, it's part of the reason why I think um, pantheistic forms of religion, which, by the way, exist in every religious tradition mm-hmm. in the world, um, are usually the minority form of religion. Um, and in many ways, they are, they are seen even as suspect in, in some ways because of this idea, this conception that that the all is God and God is all. Um, and so people say, well, then what do you do? How do you deal with morality? How do you pray? How do you form a relationship to a God that has no personality, that is utterly dehumanized? And I, what I would say is that it, it begins with this fundamental understanding that there is sort of two ways of quote-unquote being religious. One is seeking to know about God, and the other is seeking to know God. And they're not the same thing. I think what religion does is it points the way to God. The Sufis have this wonderful 
a phrase that I always like, which is that religion is the signpost to God. It points the way to God. And what mystics in all religions uh, want to do instead is to actually unite with God, to be one with God. So a pantheist who believes that there is no division between creator and creation, um, that all beings are that the sum of all existence, the sum of all creation um, is God, experiences that God precisely through his or her experience with other people and with creation. I, in my relationship with those around me, I see the face of God and I experience the divine in that relationship. In my experience of the world and of nature, um, that's where I experience the divine in my life. And so not just prayer, but the spiritual experience in general becomes an all encompassing uh-huh. thing. Um, <clears throat> it's not a thing that happens in church or in mosque. Mm-hmm. Prayer is not a formalized thing for me. It is uh, it is part of the very experience of being human. You know what it is, is in many ways, it's a, it's a different kind of knowing, if you will. Um, it's, it's the understanding that the material realm that I experience on a day-to-day basis is not the only um, realm of reality is not the only form of existence, um, that there is a transcendent underlying existence beyond it all that I seek to, to connect with. And listen, it's not easy. It's not something that I do all the time or, or do particularly well, but like any spiritual practice, it is about formulating a, a mindset that, um, compels this kind of worldview and behavior, this this experience of the world and all of its complexities. Have you found, um, in I assume you've talked to a lot of people, people uh, with the same kind of uh, mystical impulse toward their spiritual um, lives um, are resisting or um reluctant to use the term God because of the misconceptions and the uh, confusion around the the word itself? Absolutely. It's very funny that you say that, but you're absolutely correct. Um, And so there are, you know, many different ways that you will hear people say that, you know, the creator or divine or reality or the universe is a very, is a a popular one, right? Um, because, you know, uh, God as a word was a lot of baggage, That's right. as, as, as you, you guys certainly know. I will say what's really fascinating to me in my conversations with religious people around the world is that I find that um, mystics within different religions have more in common with each other mm-hmm. than they do with their own co-religionists. Um, you know, uh, in other words... Um, you know, Sufis in Islam have more in common with, um, say, Hasids in Judaism than Hasids have with their fellow Jews or that Sufis have with their fellow Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's part, part of this, this desire to break free of the external shell of religion and to have an intimate encounter um, with the divine, however, however that divine is understood or defined. Right. Dennis, let me just add something to that. Recently, I had uh, uh, breakfast with 
um, Jim Finley, who's an expert on Christian mysticism, and he had a book with him uh, of Thomas Merton's correspondence with Sufi masters. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a common understanding among among yeah. mystics because you know it goes back to this ultimate understanding that whatever else religion is, it's a language. It's a it's a language of symbols and metaphors that that allow um, a people of faith to communicate to themselves to each other this ineffable experience um, of the divine. But in the same way that a person speaking German and a sp- person speaking French are saying the same thing, but in different languages, that's, I think, what mystics understand, is that fundamentally the sentiment, the emotion that I am expressing is universal, though I may be expressing it in a different language. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, one of the ma- major functions of a humanized religion, as you would call it, is to uh, describe to people what life will be like after death, and it's usually a description of you know going somewhere, and uh, it just carries on, but more uh, happily and uh, forever. Uh, <laughs> as a pantheist, mm-hmm. how how do you answer that if somebody says, "What about death? What then? What?" Yeah, they have this concept of heaven and hell, which in the book, by the way, I I make clear what a new idea that mm-hmm. is. I think people don't realize. Mm-hmm. Um, what a new conception that is. I mean, we can basically trace that to about 3,000 years ago. And this is, of course, in the hundreds of thousands of years of spiritual history and certainly the tens of thousands of years of, of religious history. Um, it's, a, it's a very new concept. And, and it's very interesting to me that it is a, a form of um, reward and punishment, Right. That this idea that, you know, part of what it means to be either moral or immoral on Earth is an expectation of some kind of cosmic reward or the fear of some kind of cosmic punishment, as Mm -hmm. though we are all, you know, five year old children who get a lollipop if we sit silently through a haircut (laughs) or something, you know, and it's and it tells you a lot about how immature many forms of of spirituality can actually be when that is what's truly at stake. Now, I should mention that that's not a universal to all religions. For example, Judaism doesn't have a concept of a heaven or a hell. doesn't matter if you're a good Jew or a bad Jew. Um, You all go to the same place. And so morality is about the responsibilities that you have in this world and the covenant that you make with God about what kind of person you will be. But for the most part, many religions do have this idea. And I think for, for myself, you know, as well as I think many mystics, many pantheists, um, because we do not differentiate between creator and creation, we don't think of death as being, you know, uh, a movement from one kind of existence to a different kind of existence in which we look and feel and act the same way. In many ways, it's sort of a return, if you will. It's a, it's a breaking free of the mortal shell and, a, and an absolute unity 
with the divine. The Sufi, great Sufi poets, you know, have this metaphor that they use when they talk about a drop of water in a vast ocean, right? That, that it's about returning to the substance that you actually are. Right. Um, and, and that I think is a, is a, at least for me, a much more um, spiritually fulfilling idea than the notion of some kind of reward or punishment. Right. If, if I could mm. just follow up uh, on that, uh, but in life, uh, one has awareness of emotions, feelings, uh, uh, perceptions. In uh, if one merges with the ocean, the drop merges with the ocean, isn't that the same as that individual being obliterated? What's the awareness of then? Is it just awareness of awareness? Yeah. Which is very abstract. Right, this idea... Right. Do we maintain our individual consciousness or does it just become one with the consciousness um, you know, of the universe? I mean, these are, you know, in many ways, unanswerable questions. Mm -hmm. and, and you can understand why the, the desire, the impulse is to maintain your sense right. of individualization. Um, this idea that you will be exactly who you are. You will continue your life the way it is now. Um, that is, by the way, the, the, the earliest conception of the afterlife, right? That whatever life you are living now, regardless of your morality, is the life that you will be living in the next life. That if you're a, a farmer in this life, you'll be a farmer in the next life. If you're the king in this life, you'll be the king in the next life. Um, that this just keeps going without pause. And I get the, 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 the impulse for that, um, but it, it doesn't just rings hollow to me, spiritually speaking. Well, if you continue your research in the afterlife, we'll look forward to your uh, <laughs> next, your, your posthumous books. Uh, uh, Reza, um, a lot of um, your uh, current book um, is uh, a God of Human History, is um, predicated on evidence of this hardwiring to humanize God that you spoke about. Can you tell us what that evidence is and you know, mm -hmm. what you've came upon in your work? Sure, sure. Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, it has to do with this gigantic evolutionary puzzle that scholars have been um, trying to crack for the last two centuries, which is why religion? Why does it exist? What we know, what there is unanimity on, is that the religious impulse is a universal impulse, that it exists in all cultures, in all places of the world, and throughout all of time. And indeed, the material evidence suggests that it's an impulse that predates our very species, the Homo sapiens. It's an impulse that can be found in Neanderthals, and, although in this case there's a little bit more debate, it can even be found in Homo erectus. However, the problem then is that it, there has to be some reason for it. There has to be some adaptive advantage to religion. Um, otherwise, evolutionarily speaking, why does it exist? And although there have been two centuries worth of answers to this question, those answers have all fallen short. And the general conclusion among most evolutionary theorists and cognitive scientists these days is that there is no adaptive advantage to religion, that the, the reason that religion exists or the religious impulse exists as a universal phenomenon is that it must be um, the result of some kind of 
evolutionary accident, that it must be some byproduct of another adaptive advantage that arose early in human evolution. Um, that, by the way, is a perfectly good answer to that question. Another perfectly good answer to that question is that it's not an accident. It's by design and that we are just simply meant to be like this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no proof either way. It's, it's, up, it's up to you which, which one of those answers you choose because, again, it's unprovable either way. But what that does is it starts to talk about the fact that whatever this impulse is, it exists in our brain and it's part of the neural mechanics um, you know, of our very consciousness. And those neural mechanics are deeply embedded in certain cognitive processes, like, for instance, um, something called the theory of mind, this thing that happens in human beings where we um, recognize other beings who look uh, like us, as people who are us. In other words, if you look like me, you must feel like me. This is a, a, a cognitive impulse that gets triggered, um, you know, I think sometime around six months old or something. Um, and it's called theory of mind. And all of this really focuses this, this investigation on precisely the use of the self to make sense of the other and whether that other is your mother and father or whether that other is the divine. But what's really interesting is we also now have a a great deal of psychological studies done, particularly on children, um, children who come from religious families, children who come from non-religious families, children, you know, who, who run the gambit as far as culture and geography goes that indicates that, um, young children are sort of born with this idea uh, of this humanizing impulse that when, when forced to talk about God or to explain God um, in, in words, that they immediately fall into this habit of humanizing the divine, of creating God as basically just a giant, and by the way, usually man, mm-hmm. almost always man, as a giant man with sort of superhuman powers. And again, doesn't matter whether they grew up in a religious mm-hmm. family or grew up in a family that never talked about God. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of hardwired in our brains. Reza, I want to thank you, thank you so much for taking the time to come on with us today. The book, God, A Human History, I highly recommend it. Uh, and, and while you're at it, uh, get his other book, uh, uh, one of his other books, Zealot, uh, two books that will make you think very deeply. Uh, again, God, a human history. Uh, uh, wonderful to have you on today. Dennis, can I ask one last question? Go I right know ahead. Reza has to go. Yeah. Uh, sure, go ahead. As, as a fellow author, I have to ask you about this. Uh, and I also want to uh, let listeners know uh, about it. Um, you have a huge endnote section in your book. It's, <laughs> it's about a third as, much, as big as the text itself. Um, I, I want to, to tell listeners that, to not avoid the endnotes, that the endnotes are really substantive and rich and should be read uh, right. you know, in, in and of themselves. Uh, but I'm curious about the decision. Um, what went into mm-hmm. making those endnotes so extensive and as opposed to keeping some of it in the text? I have known for quite some time that I have two kinds of, of readers. 
I have the reader who is just happy with the text and will just take my word for things and is interested in the narrative and the argument that I'm making. And then I have that reader who <laughs> at every point says, come on, how, how, you know, how do you know that? Don't say, what are you talking about? We know that reader. That stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I could put that stuff in the main body of the text, but then it gums it up. That's, uh, yeah, then it right. makes it, it slows it, it, it down. no longer an en- mm-hmm. yeah, it makes it no longer an enjoyable read. Right. But what I do to make sure that I am servicing that second reader is that my endnotes aren't just read this book, this is the page number. I try very hard to make sure that my endnotes are also in narrative form, that they also um, are sort of an enjoyable read, but I know that not everyone's going to to read them. Well, I hope they do because you 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 put a lot in those notes that uh, are very informative and uh, uh, substantiate a lot of the text. So exactly, and I thank you very I much, guys. Appreciate it. it. Thank you. Thanks very much for giving us the time, and we'll look for you on your um, quite extensive uh, book tour and. Uh, Hope to see you saying uh, some good, substantive, controversial things in the media. (laughs) Thank you so very much, guys. Thank you very much. Take care.